WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. 1053 Main Street Gallery in Fleischmann's, designed as a space to support a vibrant and active artistic community nestled within the Catskill Mountains. Presenting Light Codes, a group photography exhibition and special installation by Lindsay Comstock and Monty Wilson, bringing together works by artists who use photographic processes and the language of light to transport viewers to new realms. Light Codes, on view through Sunday, February 25th at 1053 Main Street Gallery in Fleischmann's, 1053MainGallery.com. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center in Walton, open 730 to 230 Tuesday through Saturday for waste disposal and recycling, in service to make a difference by reducing pollution in Delaware County. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center, State Route 10 in Walton, 607-832-5800. Or click the Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center link at WIOXradio.org. This is Dan O'Connell, host of Monday Morning Music on WIOX Roxbury. As a WIOX spokesperson, I also manage underwriting for the station. And I'm here to let you know that underwriting on WIOX is a great way to support the station and inform the community about your business or service. If you'd like to become an underwriter, contact me for details at 607-326-3900 or WIOX at WIOXradio.org. to WIOX Community Radio Live and Local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org. On computers or smartphones, this is From the Forest with Ryan, John, Zara, and Zane. How's it going? Going good. Going good. Going good. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, things are fine, Ryan. What's up? 
Uh, well, tonight is the, uh, what do we got, forestry check-in. We try to do this once in a while, the first Wednesday of the month, and it is the first Wednesday of February, is it not? Seems like it. I don't know. Why is it going to be like, like, <laughs> like it it's not so? It would the first February. Suppose first so. Wednesday of February. Yes. Well, it is. It is the first Wednesday of February. It's the first, it's the, it's the seventh, right? Today. Yeah. So the 31st was the last radio show. So yeah. So happy February. Okay. So All right. what's new in February? What's new is, is this is maple sugar in season, man. It is a uh, full swing in most areas. It's weather right now is perfect today. Perfect ideal day for sap to be running out of them sugar maple trees. Just highs in the low 40s. It's sunny. So when that sun comes out, it warms them up pretty fast. It was around 32 degrees driving through Phoenicia today at, you know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock rather. So they're run, they they got a good run in, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's probably just above freezing right now. So Yeah, you're going to be swimming in sap when you go home. Yeah, that'll probably be 25 <laughs> gallons. I don't tap as much as I used to. That way I'm not swimming in sap. <laughs> yeah, Zara and I were in Gramsville. Uh, for most of the day, and we were driving back, and it was 45. And uh, I think my buckets at home are probably pretty full right now. And I've been waiting for that because it's been pretty cold here in Margaretville for a while. Yeah, yesterday I uh, only got 14 gallons out of 17 taps, and it was because it was so cold. It really didn't get above freeze until almost noon, mm-hmm. you know. So, But today was a little different story. Yeah, I tapped yesterday, and they were running at 4 o'clock yesterday when I tapped. Obviously, yeah. they were in the sun, and yeah. So yeah, I expect some some running buckets today, but I only tap two trees. I'm gonna concentrate on the wood stove every night. Yeah, for uh, a few nights in a row, and then just store it in cold cold environment till I get enough where it makes sense to do one batch and boil down. Maybe make a quart. That's all my goal is this year. Between a quart and a half a gallon, I'll be happy. All right, and you, Zane. What makes me happy? I don't know. Just just doing it. I I got a good amount of sap or syrup last year, and uh, I have uh, tapped three more trees than I did last year. I'll probably tap another one. I'm kind of looking at trees near the road that are just the right size, and these trees are all sort of multi-stemmed uh, sugar maples, but they got some big trunks on them, yeah. and uh, um, mostly in the sun towards the end of the day. But yeah, I'll be tapping more and having more syrup. So. We got that backyard demonstration, uh, backyard maple demonstration, Catskill Forest Association, this Saturday at my house over in Sampsonville. Yep. So should be good. I know I'll be definitely boiling, so it'll be a good time to show people just the process of a small little operation. It's supposed to be 54 degrees mm. Saturday, and it's not going to freeze the night before, mm. so it'll it'll be running. They'll run about one, two days without freezing and then and then shut off so it's going to be really good until monday tuesday and then it's gonna get cold again we're going back to winter yeah yeah highs in the low 30s mid 30s tops where i am which means here in delaware county it's going to be low 30s you know so get a little reprieve which i'm fine with that's fine with me yeah we'll all be there saturday <coughs> the whole crew yeah so uh zane and i just went to the new york state arborist conference Yes, Over in Suffern, and uh, you know, I had a bunch of breakout sessions or whatever. And there were some interesting things. Um, beech leaf disease, which I don't find that interesting because 
they're yeah. all dying anyway. No one, you know, not one person said, "Hey, by the way, pal, the, you know, ninety nine percent of them are dying from beach bark disease." But it's a new leaf disease, and uh, supposedly it's a nematode, I guess. Yeah, Richard Buckley, of the Rutgers University. He's the top uh, plant um, uh, diagnostic. Uh, guy in there and he gave a great uh, <laughs> great presentation on nematodes or as he calls them toads toads uh, oh uh, and he ended on what everyone was waiting for which was uh up-to-date information on bld beech leaf disease yeah and nothing really new to report a lot of speculation a lot of theories about how it moves uh how it infects things um some interesting things he's he's struggling usually these nematodes leave egg masses behind that they can uh, propagate in the lab, but um, they don't leave anything in leaf material on the forest floor. Um, they speculate that they move in um, moisture films, and they they move to different parts of the plant over winter in the buds. And um, so, just a very interesting uh, creature, and uh, still really don't know how it spreads so quickly. Um, I think maybe birds, um, but uh, yeah, I mean nematodes themselves are very. I don't know if they're understudied, but they're definitely underappreciated in, in terms of people's knowledge about what affects plants. And uh, he seemed to have a real good authority on it, but still, there's still a lot of questions. So. Did anybody bring up that it's a good thing? Or is it not considered a good thing? Uh, I'm, I'm just saying, we got so much disease what? beach out there. Anyway, is anybody well, happy about this? Well, like, this, yay, this is, yeah, this is an arborist conference. So these guys, uh, they're not foresters. They don't work in the woods. They're working on people's uh, residential homes, landscape plants. So they didn't really have that perspective. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I mean, I don't want to see beach go away like every other right, tree right. is going away. But, you know, the stressed ones that are already stressed and already dying, maybe this will kick them in and give way for something else to take its place. Yeah, arborists are more of an urban crowd. Like, I like the, you know, Catskill Forest Association, we're kind of like that bridge between forestry and arboriculture. Foresters are more like holistic, you know, rural people. Arborists, they want, they're more like preservationist urban people. They, they don't talk about killing trees usually. Yeah, okay. I find. Every, more trees, the better, seems. What? Point. Well, I don't know. It's it's the more. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say something. Oh, oh. <laughs> she yeah, had the <laughs> No, I was just going to say I was. Uh, I mean, I'm generalizing, by the way. No, on the flip side, I was at the uh, Society of American Foresters conference, and it was very briefly mentioned in one of the breakout sessions, and you don't hear a peep of of people complaining about it. So, <laughs> I'll just put that there. But yeah, no, I I agree with John. You know, it's not not that I want to see beach go away, but um, especially in the Adirondacks, I bet they're not too sad about it. Are the healthy ones making it through? Is I guess my big question on this is that the I don't know prognosis I, or is I, it just killing. I think um, I mean correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe maybe Zane or Ryan know more, but I think it mainly if it affects younger trees, they kind of just like wilt and and die away, and they might send up more shoots. But um, I don't think the the prognosis is very positive. Yeah, it's mainly affecting these understory beech thickets, and they attribute that to the, the moisture film. The moisture is just not getting up into the canopy of these larger trees, and that means that the nematodes aren't getting up there. Um, but from what they understand of, like, the actual mode of, like, the attack, it's kind of like a stress response of the tree. The, the, the nematode is inside the tree. 
um, the tree kind of starts to plug up, wall off certain parts of its anatomy, and, and that usually leads to the welting to the death of the tree. So um, it might attack larger trees, but I think, uh, I don't know, moisture plays a role in it, from what they can tell. Um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, beach in the lower Hudson Valley in New York City is better because there's not stands of them. Mm-hmm. So you will find healthy beach growing in, like where I grew up in New Paltz, where we don't have stands of beach. Whereas in the Catskills, where it just moves so fast that every tree has it. Yeah. There's beautiful beach trees in the Hudson Valley. And the same thing when you move west. Finger Lakes picks up really nice beach again. Okay. Yeah, I've been I've even seen some beach that are covered in scale, but I don't see any cankers forming, which is the other side of the beach bark disease. So yeah. they kind of look healthy, but they are covered in this this insect that's feeding on them. So it's I don't know. interesting. Yeah, we'll we'll talk more about this New York State uh, the um, Society of American Foresters conference that Zara went to. I forgot about that. But I wanted to mention, we should mention the Birds and the Bees Act. Right. I got it right in front of me That was a here. big deal at the conference. What? At the New York State Arborist Conference. So, this so talk again. I, ISA is really good no, because... No, no, it's not what you think. Not yet. Um, again? Yeah, ISA is really good because, you know, they, they, they uh, keep their industry uh, kind of informed of the things that are happening uh, and, uh, the Assembly House in New York State. Um, so we're talking about the Birds and the Bees Act, which is basically the um, law that prohibits, restricts use of uh, neonicotinoids, neonics, uh, pesticides. Um, this is mainly covering uh, uh, insecticide-coated seeds like soybeans and corn and wheat. That's like 80 to 90 percent of it. Uh, but it also affects... Um, ornamental plant uses um so a lot of things people treat ornamental trees things like scale they use these systemic insecticides to to kill them um but there are some exceptions to it you know there's exceptions for invasive species so we can still use these to treat things like elongate hemlock scale emerald ash borer and hemlock woolly delgid um spotted lanternfly even asian longhorn beetle um, and if there's new kind of uses for them, there's an emergency use, like, exception to it. But it's it's restricted. It's not completely banned or prohibited. But um, so people who use these to treat things like common scale on ornamental trees have to find something else. Because it's not going to be legal to use um, by next year and then later another in uh, 2026. So Yeah. That, my con- The common consensus I thought at the conference was that people were not happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought that the EPA already regulates these things. They have to go through millions and millions of dollars of testing. And then the DC reviews it as well. The DC, the state, can be even more stricter than the EPA. So, you know, I think it's redundant. Now, on the label as a commercial pesticide applicator, you're not allowed to kill bees. You're not, you know, you shouldn't be um, spraying it on. It says right there, mm-hmm. anything flowering anyway with bees. So, um, I don't know. I don't. I don't really see the point. I really don't. In fact, I, I still want to see the study. I've written about it before in the past. Birds and bees are going down. I don't think due to chemicals. I would hypothesize it's due to habitat. There's there's, there's not much young forest out there. We don't have many fields out there with nectaries mm-hmm. and pollinator plants. How does that factor into it? So to, to just say this broadcast assumption that birds and bees are going down to due to neonics. 
I think is is very is simplifying the matter quite a bit. But that's just my hypothesis. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we know Audubon knows that birds are going down because of early successional habitat not being there. But whatever. Yeah, I mean these people they're they're licensed applicators. They're trained. They maintain their credentials. Um, they spend a lot of money on that. Um, they do their research and they're very well informed and they follow the label. So this is just another thing that. Uh, you know, presents a difficulty for them in their business. Yeah, so, I don't know. But it, it um, at first, I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to treat hemlock woolly adelgid. I'm not going to be able to save these right. hemlocks. See, a Catskill Forest Association has a tree saver program, but then I said, right, read right in there, there's just an exception to, to that. So, it's not going to affect us right now. Right. Because we'll they, see. you know, that's kind of an acknowledgement of, of how uh, important these uh are for protecting these kind of critical species which you know when it comes to the environment you're making a trade-off there you're making a trade-off yeah i mean well, guy from bartlett said uh he thinks it's going backwards now this is just his claim but instead of using some of those on on non-invasives they might have to use organophosphates which he thought were more toxic mm. that was instead always of, my instead of using what trunk injections and, and, and all this stuff that they use that was way less toxic and way more targeted to the site i don't know i don't know that's what i i mean not specifically to neonics but that's what i've been trying to educate and warn landowners about anytime they push anything um it comes up with glyphosate conversations a lot but sure there's alternatives absolutely there is but that comes with their own risk and we're not using those alternatives currently because they have you know more risky side effects like flash meaning non-target can move through the soil and target non-target species adjacent it's called flashing the next one so it's uh, what's what's the trade-off here and why and what's better i don't know if those analysis are really going through i think it's just people you know yelling whoever yells the most maybe is catching the attention of their uh representatives i mean the, the guy down there from the dc um He's been in Bureau of Pesticides forever. He he was like, nah, it's it's crazy, you know. We, I, I asked even him if the, the DEC put in a word like, don't do this, and he claimed they did. I don't know, but even the yellers, like, are you really not looking into what else is out there? Like, what's the next move? Like, where's the chess piece? Go after this? Like, come on. I think uh, they made up their mind. They're gonna go after the next one next. I don't know. I mean, that's it's just bizarre to me to yeah. plainly choose the next option being the the worst one. I don't mm -hmm. know. Not thought out. Maybe it's not thought out. Again, it's the, we've talked about this before. It's just a failure to assess risk. You know, I just got off the phone with the American Lung Association, and you know, lady there was just saying how there is no safe amount of particulate matter a human being can breathe. That's not a scientific statement. Right. That's an, that's that's a feeling. You know, I want to see some numbers. You know, I want to see hazard and risk, right? What harm is it going to do, and what's the risk of it happening? Saying something is safe or not, that's a feeling. It's not, it doesn't tell you anything. Yeah, I mean, uh, everything that you do as a certified pesticide applicator, you report, and uh, there's a lot of data there, so I'd like to see data on you know, misuse, if there is, how much of that. If spills, non-target organisms are affected, is there data for that? Because there should be. They talk That's about, how we should be making decisions. Was the goal of this to target um, more of the landowner category and not the commercial category? Like, I, you can go to Track Supply and pick up a bottle of seven. Probably. Anybody can do that. I don't that's, know. That's, that's a neonic, I believe. Is it? I think so. 
Not sure. Is it metoclopridine, dinotefrin are the active ingredients, right? People right. are going after. And the mectin benzoate. Is yep. that a neonic? Yeah. Um, I don't think it is. I think maybe. there's a, a neonicotinoid treatment for it that's labeled for it. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I got I had uh, hornets and myeves this year that I had to do something about, and I just, you know, went and got the stuff, the powder. Yeah. Uh, or if you get the spray can, that spray can is, is basically metoclopridine, some of them. Uh, yeah, right. And that you just, you as a guy walking off the street, you can buy that, use it, toss it, and you don't have to report anything. Yeah. So that's a real big uh, black spot for, for what's really being used and how much, and if people are using it correctly. So Yeah. Uh, I don't think people understand the whole chemical thing. You know? But then again, they don't understand fire either. So, I mean, you, you <laughs> can't eliminate everything to control vegetation, you know, vegetation and insects. Like like we said before, you're taking away fire. You can't burn anymore in New York. Okay, cutting. A lot of people are against that. It's like, and now we're going after chemicals. Well, what are we going to do here? <laughs> you know, like, how are we going to control stuff? <laughs> yeah. These are trade-offs, decisions that are being made, but they're not being made by people who work with this stuff every day, it seems like. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So that's something that uh, was a uh, uh, big topic at the conference. Yeah, what else? I think that was about it that I want to talk about from the New York State Arbors Conference. Is there anything else? Well, I met a lot of friends in there from, from past industries, so it was really nice to see other colleagues and um, see what they're doing. Um, but, yeah, a lot of lot of uh, urban-oriented people there doing work on trees around metropolitan areas. So we're kind of the, the weird guys who come from the Catskills, and yeah. they really don't know what to make of us. So interesting. Yeah, it is. It is a dead zone. Uh, you know, Rochester, Syracuse, um, Buffalo has like an example. Um, they have an office. Bartlett Tree Experts has an office there, and then down in the New Jersey, Westchester, New York City area. But they said that Mid Hudson Valley Catskills is a, a black zone. It's it's, <laughs> it's interesting because I that's what I tell guys down there that you know we we talk to landowners, we talk to trees around their home, and uh, um, talk with about trees around their home and do tree assessments, assess risk, hazards, and all of a sudden we're in the woods. And now we're talking about forestry. We're talking about something different. Yeah. So these worlds that, you know, seem separate, the more you work in them, uh, they're not too different. So, But then it's kind of a black zone for foresters, too. It's not It's not really the, the, an area that where industrial forestry is taking place yeah, I was that well say. either. So it's kind of like both ends. I was going to say, too, it's a common thread for me as well at the, the SAF conference. I also, people also don't know what to make of my job or, or what, you know, what I do or what CFA does when I try to explain. And there's really no, like, canned response that I can give them. And they're like, oh, what do you do? What's your, you know, what's your position? Just because I feel like, um, you know, due to many reasons, but... Uh, you know, like you said, that's kind of a black zone for both of these um, areas, not only foresters, but arborists. And But people still have, I mean, there's plenty of trees, obviously, in the Catskills. So, you know, somebody's got to um, help people out when they have questions about them or, or things that they need to do on their properties. And so we kind of fall in this area where we cover all these gray areas. We, um, you know, it's almost like I had somebody describe it as like... Uh, uh, microforestry or almost like you're you're like very specifically targeting 
um, the needs of the landowner, especially since a lot of these landowners we work with um, have small, what would, would be considered, especially in industrial forestry, uh, small plots of land, you know, 20 acres or less. Um, so, you know, we got to get creative and we do all kinds of things that, uh, you know, pretty much no other person does in the region, actually, <laughs> in my opinion. John? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm the odd man. I didn't go to any uh, uh, societal conferences last week. <laughs> you know, John, you got to get out. You got to get, get some there. culture. You know. Well, even my wife. She's at a. She's at a club. She's at the Society of American Fisheries right See now. That? So yeah, everyone say, around you, you is fun. learning stuff, talking to people. <laughs> I was talking to people. And you're just you're just dragging your knuckles. I I held the fort and I talked to landowners last week. I, <laughs> I talked to people. I talked to people. <laughs> I didn't screw around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's always interesting to interact with people who, yeah, they're like. I have no idea what, what you mean when you, like, describe, like, how does that position even exist? It's like, well, it does. Yeah. What else you guys want to talk about? You want to talk about electric saws? <laughs> well, while we're bursting bubbles here? It's not worth it. Yet. Yeah. Well, it might not be ever, though, sorry. Yeah, yeah why aren't they better? Well, I thought they would have been better by now. Yeah, I don't know. Right? I mean, we it's can. been at least five years that they've been... They came out in a big way at least five years ago, and they've been really active in the market in the last two, I would say, from my observation, yeah. around here. So that's plenty of time for the market to catch up on flaws, right? It just seems like they're all the same. You could pick up any brand, and we see them. We get to see a really wide diversity of them because we host the game of logging class. So these anybody can come, and everyone brings their own sauce. We're seeing what people are using out there. And uh, we see all the brands, and they all suck equally yeah they do they really do and the tree felling department i'm not saying there's another use for them sure you could you know throw them throw them yeah throw them on your uh, on your atv for a little trail saw and go right around on your on your 25 acres and clean up some trails sure that's a great little use for it but to go fell trees in the forest or buck firewood forget it no way i can see a, a wide use on smaller uh, limbs, limb work. Um, we used to have, in my last year, we used to have um, an, a uh, telescopic pole pruner. It had a chainsaw head on it. We used to call it the pain stick. Yeah. And that was, you know, a uh, two-stroke engine, and that was a hell of a thing to use, but um, I can imagine it... Power pruner. Yeah, power pruners. I can yeah, imagine man. being a power Babies. pruner with a battery pack, balancing it out, and maybe with like an electric extension to it so you can extend it right up to a limb and just cut that one limb just very specific work but yeah especially for felling i don't know if it's there yet or no ever will be it's not a wood saw it's not a firewood saw if yeah. that's at all in your goals now you either have to own two saws which you know a lot of people do anyway but if the goal is to be minimalist only have one saw then the, the electric saw is out of the picture immediately yeah, I mean, it's good for someone who um, is a homeowner and doesn't use, like, a gallon of gas to last them the whole year. So when a saw is sitting, that's not good for a gas engine. It's true. Yeah, electric's great for that. So there it is. It's ready to go. But, God, I mean, I would take a 50cc over the best felling cha um, battery saw right now. And 50cc is kind of small chains. Yeah, it's the, the mid 
the mid small class, about as small as you're gonna go on the professional class of yeah. saws. Sixteen inch bar. You know, for that kind of saw. Another thing I saw, I got a kick out of it. Um, I, don't, I saw one guy who bought it, um, but there was a an electric uh, hand pruner, yeah. and at the at the kind of the uh, merchandise, and uh, it was pretty neat. It looked like a drill, and you put a battery pack in it, and it's just literally this uh, this bypass pruner at the top, and you press the button, and it goes, zzz, zzz, yeah, and it just cuts, and. Uh, I don't know. I guess if you prune a lot by hand and you get really crampy, you'd switch to that. But I don't know. At some point, loppers might be better to use. Um, yeah. It, I just don't. Yeah. I don't know what engineering question that's meant to answer. For, it's $300. Yeah. It's not cheap. Yeah. So I just don't know. Uh, I don't know. Now, those hand saws are pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Hand saws. Uh, pruners are, are so sharp now. Um, also, you know, your finger's going to get tired, too, of just pressing the button of, of the trigger, you know. It's heavy, too. It wasn't light. Yeah, it's heavy. I don't. <laughs> I didn't see anything that where you can, like, put a, a carabiner on it or a clip and hang it. It's something you always got to, like, pull out of your tool bag, and it, it's awkward. It's a little clunky, and but at that point, if, if you, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. If you're really pruning a lot of rose bushes, I guess it might work. But. Right, yeah, specific kind of thing. But, I don't know. Beats it's interesting. Me. I thought it was funny. Well, what else you guys got? What else you guys been up to? Anything interesting talking to people out there? Well, I've been... Uh, consultations have been slow. They just started picking up because uh, I think... Uh, in the middle of the winter, there's that, like like that lull between uh, or after the holidays and then the new year and everything. But uh, I've been scheduling the first um, backyard maple syrup production programs and the shiitake log inoculation programs of our forest of CFA's uh, forest farming program. So that's been exciting to reach out to people and see it kind of start to a reality and, and people are interested and, and uh, get all the supplies together so that's been cool for me to do um, maple yeah. yeah maple sugar and yeah um, and it's yeah it's been been the season it's been tricky to know when to schedule it because it's you know especially for this the backyard scale I mean you can you don't have to wait for the long stretch of the the nice weather you can kind of you know tap whenever the temperatures you know the free the freezing nights thawing days so um it's tricky to know, and, you know, all of our landowners, the members are, are located in different areas, and so the weather might be different over by, you know, if they're closer to, to where Ryan is and on the other side there in Ulster County. Uh, but, yeah, we'll see how it goes, see if uh, it's successful. I mean, it's, you know, it depends what side of the mountain you're on, right? Like, yeah. I have one bucket ice for some reason tapped on the north side. It didn't run at all yesterday. All right. At all. Hmm. So it matters. All the other trees face south, southwest. They all ran. Yeah, the tree on the north side, not a drop. Not one drop. So mm -hmm. it's amazing. I guess that would be big if you had a commercial sized bush that's all north facing, right? Yeah, that would that would really stink. You know, you just tap later. Yeah, it would just change your season, dude. Yeah, there's so many variables, right? I mean. Someone says the season didn't run for me until late or whatever. Well, where are you? You know, what elevation? What elevation? 
Yep. You know, even Ulster County. Well, we're in Ulster County. You know, where I live is right. 900 feet. You know, in Claryville, it's 2,200 feet. So, are you Hardenburg uh, up there at 2,500 feet at the top of the hillside? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's Ulster right. County. Yeah. Or are you at Ellenville in 230 feet? Right. So, but it's the tropics there. Yeah. The tropics. As one one person tells you <laughs> yeah. regularly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, well, I mean, Arkville's kind of an anomaly. In uh, Delaware <clears throat> County, it's very warm, I think, compared to some other areas. Yeah, I mean, I come from Delhi every day, and pretty regularly, two to three degrees different than Arkville, which something. It's something. I mean, it's it's something where some days I've got three, four inches of snow on my deck, and get to Arkville, and it's drizzly rain. That's something. I got no snow. You got no snow. Yeah, we've been working in it. It's nice. <laughs> I know. I've been wondering when the snow will melt. We get all these nice weather days. It's hanging on to that snowpack. Yeah. If we had much of it. Should yeah. be gone this weekend. I, yeah, the snow doesn't really benefit me at all. I don't ski. The problem with pruning apple trees this time of year is when you get that snow in these bright days, you can't see. That snow blindness, man, reflection. Yeah, I learned early on when I started working here to get some sunglasses. And for me, I had to wait a little bit longer because they had to be prescription. Yeah, you're used to it because you wear glasses. But I mean, I'm I hate wearing glasses. Like it's like something on my face that I you know I can just feel there. I and they always fog up. How do you get them not yeah. to fog up? Yeah. What do you? What's your secret? There, you just well, live with uh, it. Bill Inlaw for a game of logging claims. If you take not a drop, a speck, he says, <laughs> a speck of Dawn dish soap, yeah, yeah, on the inside of the lens and smear it around with your finger, then let it dry, and then wipe off the excess with a clean clean towel yeah that will do the trick i haven't personally tried that zane yeah. what do you do um i try not to stand too close to the tree no uh, <laughs> jesus christ um, <laughs> i they never get foggy um i don't know <laughs> what are you talking about no yeah, I, uh, I, no i don't have that issue you're not working hard enough i'll tell you that you, know, you just don't really work that hard that's what it is i guess i mean i'm climbing around the tree i'm getting warm you know uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't really, you know, the sun is, uh, it's nice out today, but for pruning and, and tree work, it's actually a pain, you know. You, you like those overcast days. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially for the ground guy looking up at you all the time. Yeah, you get that Texan yeah. look. Squinty eye. <laughs> well, Zane and I were cutting trees today. It wasn't too bad, actually, because it was still, I mean, we were, I guess we were around Denning and probably still at a higher elevation, so it was sunny, but it wasn't too warm. Uh, That's a different world up there. It could be cloudy and freaking snowing up yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, no. So it was nice, actually, because normally I, I'm a sweater. Like, I sweat a lot doing, especially cutting trees, and uh, I was not very sweaty today. I mean, we didn't do too many, but... Yeah, it makes two of us. I run hot. So hot. Some, sometimes I, uh, you know, regret wearing the long underwear, but... That's what it is. Man, I'm cold, man. The long underwear is on every day from November to March for me. Yeah. But when you get a day like this, it's tough. It's tough. No. It's great in the morning. Bad <laughs> man. In the yeah. afternoon, you wish yeah. you can remove them without taking your pants off. But yeah, don't do People that. frown on it. You know, there's a company that solved that. They're making... Uh, solved that. They, oh, yeah. They, <laughs> you know that I problem, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're making them now that are three-quarter zips, so they're above the line of your boot, if you have eight-inch boots. Oh, yeah. 
And then they've got zips down to the knee. So you could, I mean, you could have to unbutton a little bit, but you could reach down through your pant leg, unzip, zip, and pull them right off. Sweet. You going to get some? I don't need that because I wear mine year round, or not year round, uh, every day from November to March, but Zane does. Sounds like you it. Go, Zane. I don't know. What are you going to do? <laughs> I'll have to look into this. Yeah, get test some, them out. <laughs> it's been so far, knock on wood, a very pleasant winter for working outside. Yeah. You know, and we've said it before, I'm really pissed at these people in the media and on radio who, in July, when it's sunny and 92 degrees, beautiful say, day. Oh, it's a beautiful day outside the Catskill Mountains. And then on a day like today, it's 30 degrees or 40, sunny, and you don't hear a peep. Well, I like those days where it's in the teens and it's it's sunny out, blue oh, skies. That's the, that's, that's the best weather. Nobody talks about. You don't that. even sweat or anything. Mm-hmm. It's it's the best. Meanwhile, ninety two degrees is disgusting. Oh, yeah. All right, that's Florida stuff, man. I don't want that. You can have it anyway. This is from the forest every Wednesday, six to seven p.m. Every first Wednesday of the month, we just have forestry check in. Uh, Catskill Forest Association staff just uh, you know just. Uh, discusses whatever about the forest. We'll be back. Back about 18 and 25 I left Tennessee very much alive I never would have made it through the Arkansas mud if I hadn't been riding on a Tennessee stud Had some trouble with my sweetheart's paw One of her brothers was a bad outlaw I wrote a letter to my Uncle Fudd And I rode away on a Tennessee stud The Tennessee stud was long and lean The color of the sun and his eyes were green he had the nerve and he had the blood There never was a horse like the Tennessee stud Drifted on down into no man's land Across the river called the Rio Grande Raced my horse with the Spaniard's fold Till I got me a skin full of silver and gold me and the gambler, we couldn't agree We got in a fight over Tennessee I pulled our guns and he fell with a thud And I rode away on the Tennessee stud The Tennessee stud was long and lean The color of the sun and his eyes were green He had the nerve and he had the blood there never was a horse like the Tennessee stuff. I rode right back across Arkansas. I whipped her brother and I whipped her ball. I found that girl with the golden hair. She was riding on a Tennessee mare. Pretty little baby on the cabin floor A little horse cold playing round the door I love the girl with the golden hair And the Tennessee stud loves the Tennessee mare The Tennessee stud was long and lean The color of the sun and his eyes were green He 
had the nerve and he had the blood There never was a horse like the Tennessee stud If you're tuning in, you listen to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. And tonight's topic is forestry check-in. Just uh, shooting, what is it, chewing the fat? Um, you know, with CFA, Catskill Forest Association staff, about this and that, whatever comes to our mind. What books are people reading? Anything forest-related? Uh, I just got done with an audio book about um, the long hunters. Long hunters. And the long hunters. These were the American mountain men era of people that uh, in the late 1700s before the revolution would harvest uh, deer hides for market, market trade of hides. So the long hunters, yeah, they would they would they would go on hunts that were years long. Some of them, years, like that was Christ. that's what was yeah designated a long hunt. So they the um, they would. Mostly in the Tennessee area, Tennessee, Kentucky area. That was about as far west as we'd settled at that era. Um, and they would advance beyond settlement line and, and move into uncharted lands and, and bring back hides for hunt for one to two years at a shot. How would they get the hides back? Horseback. Horseback. And Salted. then probably by river? Um, yeah, because it was a global market. So it must have. Well, salted hides, salted hides, ha- deer skins. Yeah, uh, deer skins, salted hides. They'd have them um, f- fleshed or hair off, rather. Oh yeah. They would scrape the hair off, mm. so they weren't in like a lye solution to make it dissolve out or fall out, rather. Huh. Um, yeah, it was pretty neat. They found um, uh, historians have found these old sheds or sites of where those old skin and sheds were and hair in the soil goes down six feet oh, i bet from thousands of hides being all fleshed right there yeah it takes a while for that stuff to break down yeah i have a hair pile side of my yard yeah i ended up writing, writing the author afterward as, as you do yeah as, as one know. does <laughs> I ended up writing the author. I had a couple points. The whole last chapter kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I invited him on this show to talk about it. Pissed you off, John? Kind of. I mean, that's the whole, like, habitat versus market hunting. And this is what I always ran into in in wildlife management classes. Everybody blames the market hunters for everything. And, sure, it's easy for market hunters to take the last of something. Yeah. But... What got it down to the last? It wasn't market hunting. You know? I don't think so. I don't think so either, especially on, on two fronts, right? We either have a, a frontierism front where it's a vast open landscape. How do you cover it all? How do you get to it all? How do you create a market so vast that it can fulfill that? And then this book got into numbers, right, of deer harvested. And it was in the tens of thousands, like 50,000, 100,000. That's nothing. Yeah, today. Well, how many deer are harvested in New York New York State, State alone harvests 235,000 deer a year, yeah, plus car collisions, plus natural causes. We're talking half a million or more deer die in New York State alone. Right. So, okay, so these numbers are, are a tenth of, um, you know, what's current today, and we have a growing deer population in most areas, especially urban. So I wrote him about that. Um, he kind of brushed that off oh, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's right. I remember you said you emailed him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I asked him, I was like, how come you didn't talk about habitat? Because he talks about a little bit about the trees. Um, 
and I can't remember specifics. I wish I took notes on this prepared for this conversation, but um, no, there's no reason to prep. No, I'm just I'm just saying I could have had some better talking points about. But, but he talked about habitat in the book, but then didn't relate it to okay, well this would cause deer to decline. He talks about how the uh, the hunters at the end of the market era, uh, when um, the the deer hides were in short supply, would switch to bears. Well, that just tells me everything I need to know. Bears aren't existing in a young, you know, thriving forest. Um, it's not deer habitat. They, they, the book talks about um, Native American influence at the time. Native Americans were also in this trade. They actually started this trade before the the long hunters picked this up off of them. They were already selling hides to the colonists. Um, wasteful, I know. Um, I still haven't heard you mention. Sounds like he didn't. The main thing I would say: property rights. There's probably a breakdown of property rights. Yeah, you asked me this earlier. There was a little bit of insinuation, but not a direct um, chapter that could have been devoted towards this because there was that underlying explanation of Native American population decline. Um, You know, what tribe was in charge, you know, was inhabiting this valley that's no longer dominant. And then what tribes were moving in? How did that influence the long hunters moving in as well? Who fought who and why? So there was this insinuation that there was some stabilization of of uh deer populations potentially because of long-term property rights and then that being all mixed up with all these complex factors but it never I, yeah that could have been a whole chapter devoted oh, absolutely to i mean a lot of people one guy i read he did a whole study on it i mentioned in the past buffalo broke down once the native american property rights were kind of you know in turmoil so but you know to me market hunting can only kill off can only be destructive if you take out of that table that the, uh, the leg of property rights. Because then if there's no property rights, then it's just a race to the bottom. If you don't get the deer, then I will. So if right. no one, you know what I mean? Like it just becomes that tragedy of the commons, what they would call it. But yeah, it, yeah, to not mention property rights, you know? I don't know. It's the most important thing, I think. Yeah, and like I said, when you start talking and breaking down these numbers, I think there was other factors going on. There was these huge changes in habitat. They're talking about buffalo in Kentucky at the time. Um, and and then all of a sudden, there being black bears. Just You don't have to know much about habitat to understand that buffalo and, and black bears aren't, aren't exactly overlapping. <laughs> Uh, in prime habitat, and they're, and I'm not just talking about a black bear. They're, they're they're talking about going on these long hunts and bringing back, you know, in the teens number of wow. of, of bears, wow. which is hard to do. You know, bear hunters here would have a hard time doing that without hounds. Yeah, we live in and we live supposedly. in a bear yeah bear rich environment. So. Um, you know, it tells me that in in this time period of the book, the, they're going through this long hunter period. The the buffaloes, the you know, buffalo are gone because habitats forest it's reforesting. We no longer have these plains and grasslands. That means black bears are inhabiting this. Uh, I asked. This is a big long email that I typed up and. <laughs> You wound them all up, Ryan. Well, I I didn't mean to be like attacking him. I just like just I invited him on the radio show. This would be a great great topic if you wanted to talk about it. I I imagine that the packs of coyotes and wolves and vultures and crows following these guys over time. If they're harvesting so much hides and probably not utilizing all that meat. Oh no, no, none. They were just um, you know subsistence for themselves off the meat. So almost all of it got left behind. Amazing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading a book called um, Forgotten Fire by Omer Stewart. It's a great book. 
I mean, he, he basically writes in the 1940s about how all of his colleagues in anthropology don't understand how much of an influence Native Americans had with burning the landscape. And he goes into how much of North America was prairie. Okay. Yeah. Prairies. Then there was prairie peninsula stretching across the state of New York, Buffalo, <laughs> into Connecticut, Massachusetts. Long Island, he believes, was a prairie. Wow. How do they know this? By looking at different grasses that only occur in prairies. And he basically says that uh, ecologist of his time, by the way, they're using the term ecology in the 40s. I didn't even know that. Over and over again. Um, we're saying we're biased by thinking that everything where plants grow is because of soils and climate. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Climate's <laughs> everything. He's saying, yeah, climate matters a little bit. Soils matter too. Not as much as the humans. Right. And he basically just goes into all this. He goes, he goes example after example after example about how drier areas where there's only short grasses in like the west and how they burned um, and how when they even stopped burning there juniper would grow in these dry areas where they thought trees couldn't even do then they did thousands and thousands of acres of shelter belt studies as controls planted them to see if they would grow in areas where they thought trees would never grow they grew and they spread in fact as the trees grew they created conditions that were conducive to growing more trees because they would harbor more moisture in the ground so he was saying, actually, we have it backwards. Plants can control the cl their their microclimate more than we think. That's amazing. And we don't think we're not taught that at all in schools. We're no. taught the exact opposite: soils are everything, climate's everything. He's like these plants; they've experienced. There's nothing new about the climate that they haven't experienced in the last thirteen thousand years. You know, and he says, if I'm wrong, where are the prairies today? After the after the uh, fires were suppressed, they became forests. He says, that's why I'm right. <laughs> that's why I'm right. He says, and, you know, okay, overgrazing for a time suppressed the fires. But then, this is brilliant. He goes, the, the way he knows he thinks he's right is in the late 1800s, they had studies of right-of-ways along railroads. So the, in the railroads, they would burn prescribed burn along the railroads because the otherwise the tall grass would burn so they didn't want any sparks and they would um, keep out the, the livestock from grazing so it was no grazing and fires basically mimicking Native American burning and that's where you got the best prairie conditions was right along the train tracks hmm. this is pretty cool I mean this guy really I think nailed it unfortunately it's kind of bittersweet it's sweet in that Wow, you know what a what what a, the the amount of study this guy's did, academic research and stuff. It's kind of bitter in that it's like it's like seventy years later, and we're still we haven't really made any progression from this 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 stalemate of it's all about climate and soils and nothing about land use history and human beings and Native Americans. Yeah, I think people like severely underestimate land use like i almost never hear that as part of the conversation and in, in terms of like what's currently on the landscape and why like when it should be like to me I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious factor and a pretty important factor that land use history by humans would um have be one of the biggest influences on ecosystems um for a long time i mean we see this um I haven't uh, been reading books per se, but I've been reading articles on uh, 
you know, invasive species and the non-native versus native debate and what those terms actually mean and why um, or how, quote-unquote, invasive plants are able to move into the landscape. And, um, you know, people will – it's funny because it's almost uh, uh, like people will acknowledge that a human brought – uh, this plant into the ecosystem and it had a big impact. So clearly that's, you know, a, a human influence. However, won't acknowledge um, that, you know, well, what allowed this plant to prolif proliferate in a certain area? And, and often the answer does um, harken back to land use uh, before that plant arrived and what conditions um, made it, you know, able to prol proliferate in that area. Um, um, amongst many other factors too, but I think, yeah, the human factor, it's, it's either humans have a negative influence or none at all, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, um, it just shows how, I guess, like context dependent a lot of these, uh, land uses are, um, because people are, I guess, want to do the right thing for their land, so they, um, look to the past, but in the past, the same patch of ground has been a lot of different things, and it's sometimes of no no guide. But um, I don't know. I don't know if that resonates with any of you guys. The prairie is crazy. I mean, because we get western winds, right? The wind usually prevailing winds from the west. It was always pushing it east. In fact, I mean, he claims like so much data he uses. The only place where there was like trees was like on the leeward side of a river as a fire break hmm. or in mountainous country that would break up the fire but the whole midwest was just like a tinderbox once, once the native americans successfully cleared it as prairie it was just so easy to burn and and then he goes into lightning and it was like almost always he he thought was was caused by human beings not lightning hmm. and the reason was it's just excellent for creating buffalo i mean you know the forage that would come up afterwards was just it's just um so improved um you, you don't even really like in some places you would find old stumps and stuff in the ground they were finding in the 40s and stuff but for the most part you know just no signs of trees you know they really burned the crap out of it now today is juniper invading nebraska yeah that's a big topic yep. big topic and they're not burning, and now they're not being grazed. So now, because there's less, you know, some farms are probably failing, you know, as as farms centralize, I would imagine, and the bigger get bigger, small farms go under. I'm sure they're having a little bit of that too there, right? So you eliminate grazing and fire, and you start getting juniper, which they, they look at as probably as an invasive or interfering plant, I would think. Well, what does it mean uh, for the Catskills? Um, the, the, he talks about the Northeast... And we're just so much more complicated because we do have more rain. He didn't say climate didn't matter at all. Right. <laughs> so 40 inches of rain is going to be means you have to burn a lot more to create prairies, which mm. they successfully did in parts of New York. But as soon as you stop fire, as this, I have a study here I could talk about from Ohio, two to four years is how they got those oak savannas back in the day in Wisconsin and Ohio. But as soon as you stop, two to four years, four years without fire, boom, it goes instantly back to forest. And then of the trees we've talked about before, right? If you don't burn every 4, 10, 20 years, maybe get some oak and hickory. And then if you don't burn more, that's when you start getting what we have today, maple, beech, birch, right? So 
The Northeast is, I think, a lot more complicated. Yeah, very hard to burn here, contrary to what I hear from uh, some members. But, uh, yeah, it's yeah. difficult to get a fire going and to spread and sustain itself. Yeah. So, nothing to worry about. Which is not you know, true in, in a lot of areas. But what I was really, what surprised me, too, was just how little water some trees need to grow. I mean, it, it really is amazing, you know, just blow your mind that, hey, you can grow trees in Nebraska. It might not be sugar maple, but you can grow some trees there. So hackberry is a good one, eastern red cedar. Those are two trees that'll, that will grow. Um, they would even get catalpa, 15% successful rate, but even catalpa was growing in those shelter belts. <laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, the, the amount of studying that's been done and forgotten and kind of buried buried. And to read this book from the 40s and see how see how he was talking and referring to other academics is, like I said, it's bittersweet. So you'd recommend it? No, it's a great book. It's a great book. Uh, it to me, it just it just kind of says to me about how trees is really a recent phenomenon since European settlers. Really, we're the ones who brought trees back. That's what I'm getting. Just the abundance. It's really us who love the trees because our whole culture was on wood, right. <laughs> yeah. wood products. How do we get here? Ships. What do you need a lot of to create a ship? Oh, my God. Masts, white pine, oak, you name it. Um, if that, you wanted food and bison, it was not trees. Yeah, that was another book, right? The uh, The Age of Wood by Ennis. Great book. Honest, awesome book. Yeah, great book, man. Well, that's all the time we got, believe it or not. From the forest, could have talked another hour, but I've uh, got to go, and uh, i got to go see what my buckets are doing, boil some sap. So. All right. Saw some bear tracks out there. Just saying. All right. <laughs> see ya. Good see night. ya. Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. Then the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in From the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase The old man made his way His ragged coat around him As upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened That he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool In the forest And as he lay there sleeping A vision did appear Upon his mantle shining The face of one so dear Who'd loved him in the springtime Of a long forgotten year When the wildflowers did bloom his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name and then he heard the joyful sound of children at their games in an old house
downtown 